Today's episode is sponsored by Morgan Stanley. Will digitalization of drug development cure the healthcare industry? What will digital disruption mean for patients, healthcare providers, technology companies, and investors? Learn more at morganstanley.com slash drug development. Morgan Stanley & Co., LLC, member SIPC. Opening bell in about 20 seconds. Let me just set the stage for you. Money, money, I want more money. You cannot have it all. This whole system is too confusing. Hi, I'm Ben White, and this is Politico Money. This week, U.S. trade fights are escalating into an all-out steel cage death match. NAFTA, up in the air. The EU is set to retaliate on steel tariffs. Tit-for-tat tariffs with China just blew up. The U.S. and China were threatening tariffs on $50 billion of each other's exports. Now we're in a whole new ballgame with threats on hundreds of billions more. We'll take stock who wins and who loses. And later in the show, we'll hear about one sector that's definitely winning as the trade fight simmers over, lobbyists. Here to help us unpack all of this, Politico's senior trade reporter, Doug Palmer. Doug, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, it's my pleasure, Ben. All right. So let's try to level set a little bit. It's a difficult thing to follow all of the various trade fights that the Trump administration is engaged in at once. Uh, But let's see if we can boil it down to the essential ones. So NAFTA still being negotiated. Steel and aluminum tariffs have taken effect. Uh, The EU preparing to impose new retaliatory tariffs this week on Kentucky bourbon and Wisconsin cranberries. So tell us where we are quickly on NAFTA steel and aluminum, and then we'll get into China after that. Right. Well, like you said, NAFTA is still being negotiated, and there's a big question mark now about how soon it's going to get done. Uh, The Mexican presidential election is on on July 1st, and so, you know, at a certain point, um, it becomes impractical for the current administration to continue negotiating. I mean, the thing is, people were predicting that point would come, you know, back in February, March, April, May, but they've continued to stay at the negotiating table, although in recent weeks it doesn't seem like very much is going on. So that's kind of up in the air right now, and and a lot of people are thinking there's a real possibility that it might not get finished until 2019. And the steel and aluminum tariffs, I mean, initially he rolled those out on China and a number of other countries, but excluded Canada, Mexico, the European Union, to give them time to negotiate some sort of other arrangement to address these um, national security concerns that that the Trump administration says it has with the imports. Well, you know, Canada, Mexico, the European Union, they don't quite buy the argument that their steel and aluminum exports to the United States are a national security threat. They didn't reach some other uh, arrangement. And so Trump went ahead and imposed duties on on those uh, three trading partners at the end of May, and now those trading partners are preparing to retaliate. Okay, so on NAFTA, just for one second, there was the concern that if no deal were made this year, that Trump might unilaterally pull out of the existing North American Free Trade Agreement and leave us with nothing. Now, he seems to vacillate on that, as he does on a number of uh, fronts. But is the current thinking in the trade world that if a new deal isn't made this year, if they continue to be hung up on a number of issues, that we just stick with the current NAFTA until they can get a new one? 
You know, I think I think that's what the, what what it looks like at this point. I mean, Larry Kudlow back a couple of weekends ago said, no, you know, Trump isn't going to withdraw from NAFTA. But yes, we do need a, a better deal. So I think that they're willing to wait at this point. But Trump is kind of unpredictable. Yeah, um, Trump is unpredictable is the, the Doug Palmer understatement of the podcast uh, so far. It's a very uh, diplomatic way of putting it. We should also mention, as our listeners will obviously know, that Larry Kudlow, the National Economic Council director, suffered a mild heart attack recently and has been out of the White House. He told me in a text recently that he definitely would be going back, but he didn't have a, a time set for that. And I always wonder with Larry when he talks about NAFTA, if he's saying what he really hopes will happen or what will actually happen. But um, just as stick on this because I'm obsessed with it because I think it's you know the most significant market-moving, economic-moving event if it were to happen uh, on NAFTA. I mean, of all the fears that people you talk to have of Trump's trade policy and the impact that it could have on the United States economy, is, is a NAFTA collapse kind of the biggest one? Well, I think it is a real concern for for the American business community that's developed, you know, all these supply chains over the last 24 years, and um, not only supply chains but but export markets in Canada and and Mexico. So, uh, I, I mean, I think there's a lot of concern out there, and and um, I think potentially it could be have a bigger impact than the tariffs that we've seen announced so far. But if Trump continues to ratchet up the tariffs, I mean, that could get more serious as well. Well, let's move on to China for a bit. Initially, we had $50 billion lists of goods that the Chinese were going to place tariffs on that we were going to place tariffs on. The first $34 billion of that in U.S. tariffs was set to go into effect July 6th. Then on Monday night, everything changed. President Trump said if the Chinese retaliate as they're going to, he would seek to put tariffs on $200 billion more in Chinese goods. And if they retaliate again, $200 billion more, getting us up to $450 billion in potential U.S. tariffs on China. All right, so let's dig into the product list on the first tranche of tariffs that are coming down the pipeline on July 6th. What kind of products are on that list the U.S. is going to slap tariffs on coming out of China? Well, you know, um, it's kind of a it's kind of a nerdy list. I mean, it's a lot of of, uh, of technical of technical items. Um, it's there's a lot of chemicals, electronic type items on there. Um, there's also cars. You know, that's relatable, and and semiconductors are, are on there. But basically, um, the inspiration for the list is China's Made in 2025 initiative, which is this program aimed at achieving dominance in a lot of high-tech sectors like robotics and artificial intelligence and um, medical technology, kind of areas where the U.S. is already the dominant player and the Trump administration wants to ensure that it, that it stays the dominant player. So that's, that, that's kind of the inspiration for how they pick items on that list. And they also, um, to, as much as possible, they wanted to minimize the impact on consumers. Um, so they stayed away from putting products on there like clothing and some items that were originally on the list, like televisions and birth control pills, uh, were removed after the public comment period to sort of minimize the direct impact on consumers. 
Um, all right. So China retaliated with its own list on Friday after the U.S. put out uh, our list. Uh, and what's on there uh, that the Chinese plan to slap tariffs on out of the United States? They put on there like, you know, agricultural products, particularly soybeans, which is our number one export, um, agricultural export to, to China. Um, autos are on there as well. Um, a lot of seafood. Apparently oil is on there as, as well. Um, so sort of a broad array of, of of you know commodity type goods um, from you know affected industries that are likely to you know loudly protest in in you know here in Washington to try to get some some relief. Um, aircraft was on their initial list, but they've apparently taken it off. So um, Boeing kind of dodged a bullet on on that. Uh, but I think you know the the soybeans probably will be the, the poster child for the retaliation list since we exported we export some, somewhere in the range of 12 to 14 billion dollars worth of soybeans to China each year um, so that's a pretty big chunk of the of China's retaliation right there okay Doug so explain to us what happened on Monday night and China's response the big new additional tariffs from President Trump and how China responded to them what happened on Monday night? Well, around 7.30, uh, President Trump put out a statement, and the statement was in response to China's decision last week uh, to retaliate um, against the uh, tariffs that China, that the Trump administration had initially imposed. Um, you know, President Trump imposed that $50 billion worth of tariffs. China said, okay, we're going to respond in, in kind. And uh, then um, Monday night, President Trump said that's unacceptable for them to respond in kind. We're the injured party. If they're going to take actions like that, we're going to hit them with another with tariffs on another two hundred billion dollars worth of goods. So essentially, Trump is saying you're not allowed to respond to our tariffs. And if you do, well, here come some big fat new tariffs. And so now we're in this two hundred billion, perhaps two hundred billion more getting you to four hundred fifty billion. And that's a lot of tariffs. So, Doug, if we're getting to anywhere near that level, $450 billion, is there any way to avoid the U.S. putting tariffs on Chinese exports that consumers use and buy and enjoy the low prices on, like clothing and iPhones and all the other stuff that Americans like to buy cheaply at retailers around the country. If we're talking about $450 billion, consumers are going to have to feel that, right? I would think so. I mean, um, a large part of, of what we do import from China are consumer goods. You mentioned clothing and cell phones. Those are certainly two big import categories. So um, it, it seems like if they're going to go after you know that much uh, Chinese product, that definitely consumers are going to are going to feel the the bite i mean these additional tariffs they're talking about a 10 percent tariff versus a 25 percent tariff um, for the initial 50 billion dollars worth of goods so you know that that wouldn't have as much impact but obviously you're covering a much larger um swath of of, of products so it's, it seems inevitable that that um you, you would see price increases as a result of that yeah, I thought it was an interesting uh, tidbit that I think you had in a story that if we got to $450 billion, 
that's 90% of the 505 billion of Chinese goods we imported last year. So you're, you're getting close to the point where, you know, perhaps it's a lower tariff, a 10% tariff. But if we were to get to that point, you'd be talking about almost everything we imported from China would be subject to these tariffs. Is, is that sound about right? Yeah, that sounds about right. And I guess that's why the administration feels like we have the upper hand um, in this, uh, this standoff, because, you know, we import uh, $505 billion worth of goods from them. And uh, they only imported from us last year $130 billion worth of goods. So if we're going to do this, you know, tariff escalation, they have far more products than we can hit, than they can hit on, on us. Yeah, I saw an interesting tweet on that topic that I wanted to ask you about. And that was, you know, of course, uh, we export less to them than they export to us. Hence, you know, we have this trade deficit with China that Trump is infuriated by. But couldn't they, on the exports that we send to them, simply up the ante on the size of the tariffs and go from 25% to 50% to 75% to 100%? So while they have fewer products that we export to them that they could put tariffs on, they could just ramp up the numbers to get to a bigger bite on U.S. exports, right? I mean, theoretically, anyway. Yeah, I mean, I, I saw that tweet as well. And um, I think that that's probably one option that they have. I guess at a certain point, you know, it doesn't matter how high you raise the tariff, it becomes uneconomic to, you know, import. Um, and so that shuts down trade. I don't know whether that happens. At, I think it would vary by product, but I don't know whether that happens at 25% or 50% or 75%. But at some point, it just becomes too too costly. But, you know, there, there are also other ways that they could retaliate. Um, U.S. companies have something like $92 billion of investment in China, and they sell in the Chinese market, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars worth of goods. So China could do things to affect their business opportunities in the, in the Chinese market. Yeah, I think you make a really good point that maybe isn't getting talked about enough, and that is that China's ability to retaliate against our tariffs is in no way limited by what they can slap tariffs on in, in U.S. exports. I mean, pretty much every U.S. tech company wants to sell more in China, and they need the cooperation of the Chinese to do that. U.S. financial services, in a massive way, want to expand in China. Uh, and there's the whole world of, of services. We're talking about tariffs on goods, but you know we export a lot of services, too. And the Chinese could make life a lot more difficult for U.S. companies that want to uh, expand in China. So you know they have this limited amount of you know hard U.S. goods exports into China that uh, they could put tariffs on. But man, there are a zillion ways the Chinese can make life difficult for. U.S. companies that want to do business in this massive growing market, right? Like we're just a little bit, I think, underestimating the power of the Chinese to make us feel the pain. Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, you know, people say that the, the Chinese are sort of masters at this sort of stuff, at, at imposing regulatory barriers in a protectionist fashion. That's a good segue into um, my next and, and possibly last question for you. And that is, you know, who's in the best negotiating position here? And you know, if we do get into a full-on trade war, Trump loves to say, you know, trade wars are easy to win. Um, are we in a position to win it against the Chinese, uh, given what you've said about our list of exports to China versus uh, their list of exports to us? And I wanted to ask you about one specific thought that makes the rounds when people talk about the U.S. versus China and a trade war. And I feel like I'm talking about like a WWE match right now, you know, when we're getting in the steel cage with the Chinese on trade. But there's this idea that 
U.S. the U.S. is not really willing to make big sacrifices in a in a trade war that we're worried about consumers noticing higher prices and punishing politicians for it and really not liking it. Um, the Chinese do not have those concerns on the political front because they're not a democratic society. They're obviously a totalitarian state with a government that can do pretty much what it wants, and the populace of China can't do much of anything about it. Um, is there a concern in trade world that while what you say is true, that that we have, uh, you know, more, we import more from them than uh, we export to them. Um, is there a fear that because the Chinese can kind of force their country to make sacrifices to win a trade war, that they, in fact, have the better negotiating position because their government can kind of do whatever it wants? Well, I mean, I think there might be something to that, to that, Ben. Um, and there's also, we have to get back to what the point of these tariffs were. The reason that we impose these tariffs is because we don't like China's industrial policy. We don't like this made in China 2025 program where they're subsidizing these interests, industries with the goal of achieving dominance. And I think the question is, are these tariffs enough to make China change its industrial policy? Because that seems to be what our, our, what our objective is. And I think that people are not persuaded, at least at this point, that the tariffs are enough to make them change their industrial policy. And they're more likely to just accept them sort of as a cost of doing business with the United States, um, you know, rather than, uh, you know, make any decisions that they don't that they don't want to want to make. I guess the question is, can the, can the Trump administration make it costly enough for China to change its behavior? But the costlier it makes it for China, the costlier it also makes it for, um, for the United States. And I, I think eventually there would be some sort of um, impact that would be felt by the American consumer. And, you know, whether the American consumer would stand behind Trump and see this as a national cause worth worth fighting um i don't know i, I um, it, it will be really interesting to see if that if 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 that happens i i don't have any experience covering something like like you know li like this so um i have my doubts and i have my questions but but um but it'll be interesting to, to see what, what would actually transpire yeah i don't think anybody really has experience covering anything like this um so essentially, it, it winds up to being a bit of America alone against China. And we see whether A, this war and steel cage match actually happens, and B, if uh, who comes out of it ahead, or if both participants in this battle wind up just hurting each other, and then no positive result comes out of it. Uh, we will certainly wait and see, and Doug Palmer will walk us through the whole thing as we go along. You can always read his stuff on Politico. If you follow trade, you better be reading Doug and his colleagues. Doug Palmer, thank you so much again for joining Politico Money. Thanks, Ben. Thanks for having me. All right. On the other side of the break, we'll look at a sector that's faring pretty well through these trade spats, lobbyists. Surprise, surprise. We'll be right back. Because NAFTA has been a horrible deal for the United States. It's been very good for Canada, it's been very good for Mexico, but it's been horrible for the United States. The Trump administration said that tariffs are, quote, essential to preventing further unfair transfers of American technology and intellectual... Trump should examine the historical record on tariffs because they have almost never worked as intended. From this day forward, a new vision will govern our land. 
from this day forward, it's going to be only America first. America first. A message from Morgan Stanley. Digitalization has transformed virtually every sector, from retail to travel to finance. But it's been slow to gain a foothold in the healthcare industry, which is heavily specialized and regulated. Now, as technology companies make meaningful moves into healthcare, disruption is coming to the drug industry. While the impact of digitalization on drug companies hinges largely on price transparency and technology integration, investors should consider how it has impacted other industries. Learn more at morganstanley.com slash drug development. Morgan Stanley & Co. LLC, member SIPC. Okay, so Politico's Marianne Levine is here with me now, and she's written a story with Theodoric Meyer about what this new trade environment looks like from K Street, the epicenter of the Washington swamp. So Marianne, thank you so much for coming on the Politico Money Podcast. Thank you for having me. We are thrilled to have you. Marianne is a star for us, has written lots of great stuff, and uh, great to have her here. So let's get into your story and lobbying on trade. But before we dig into the nitty gritty of the details, let's just set the table for people. How does the swamp usually work in Washington, the relationships between lobbyists and lawmakers? How is it supposed to work and does it generally work? Generally, the swamp works in a few different ways. Oftentimes, if a company has a certain issue that they want lobbyists to focus on, they'll hire a firm, which often has lobbyists with connections to certain lawmakers. Sometimes firms have specialties in particular areas like trade or tax. So basically, the corporations will reach out, the lobbyists will sign them as a client, and then they either go to the Hill to inform lawmakers really of what their clients' issues are, um, depending on the policy area, or They'll, if they specialize in a specific agency, they'll go to that agency, meet with representatives for the secretary, and advocate on behalf of their clients. Right. So they have a policy in mind that they want. Um, the companies do. They hire lobbyists, and they go to either agencies or Capitol Hill or the exec- executive branch, lay out their policy goals, and you know at least sometimes get what they want. Right. They're successful in lobbying for the policies that they desire. That's how it generally once worked. Okay, things are a little bit different now, particularly, I mean, everything's different in Trump's Washington, but they're particularly different on trade. Uh, And Trump doesn't seem terribly receptive to lawmakers' concerns. How is the swamp working now, especially on trade with the protectionist-in-chief Donald Trump in the White House? Trade is a new quandary for the swamp. On the one hand, it's a huge driver for business. There's multiple filings every single week that we're seeing of companies asking lobbyists to guide them through the tariffs process or to get them to explain what the Trump administration is thinking on trade. But one of the challenges with trade is that the Trump administration, the president himself, seems to have really made up his mind on the tariffs. And it seems like despite the heavy lobbying, despite meetings with the White House, the administration, the Commerce Department, the message that these tariffs are potentially going to hurt certain industries, certain sectors, appears to be falling on deaf ears. Well, let's talk about those specific companies and industries that are trying desperately to lobby the administration not to go forward with these tariffs on steel, aluminum, 
Chinese products, uh, Canadian products, Mexican products, European products, you name it, the White House is thinking of or already has imposed tariffs. So who are we talking about here? We're talking about a range of industries. Uh, we're talking about um, steel and me- steel and aluminum manufacturers in the United States who depend on imports um, of steel and aluminum to produce uh, to produce their products. We're also talking about retailers. The retail industry is very concerned about the Trump administration's potential tariffs on China, and we have a host of other industries, including agriculture, that are also concerned that the tariffs are going to lead to a tit for tat situation where uh, the other countries will impose tariffs on industries that may not be affected directly yet, but that could be in a retaliatory war in some sense. Yeah, so you mentioned the retailers, and of course they are quite worried about the tariffs on Chinese goods that uh, they often sell in their stores uh, at relatively cheap prices that consumers enjoy. Uh, And you have a particularly pungent quote in your story from a lobbyist for the National uh, Retail Federation who describes himself and his group digging through the manure to try to come up with a strategy that might work for for Trump. Tell me a little bit about um, what he said and what he meant. So David French, who's the top lobbyist at the National Retail Federation, spoke with us, and he said one of the challenges is that he, along with other business organizations, will go in and have spoken to the administration, they've spoken to the Hill about these issues, yet the message does not appear to be getting through. And when he was discussing searching through the manure, he really meant on the Trump administration's strategy on trade. We've seen, in spite of Trump's line that he wants to get tough on China, get tough on these other countries when it comes to trade. The Trump administration has shifted messages back and forth in terms of its overall strategy, which makes lobbying on this issue really difficult. Yeah, it certainly doesn't. I mean, you see lawmakers like Bob Corker and Rob Portman and other staunch Republicans who come from states that uh, do a lot of exporting and a lot of importing and are really worried about tariffs and trade. And, you know, they say they go to the White House, have these conversations with the president, and yet nothing really changes. So it doesn't seem like the bank shot route of lobbyists to go to their favorite lawmakers who can then go to the president. Those bank shots are kind of clanking off the rim and and dropping out and not really working, which gets us to the question of return on investment for the companies and industry groups that are hiring these lobbyists. Are the lobbyists worried that at some point, you know, this tariff lobbying gravy train is going to end because their corporate clients are just going to say, forget it, you can't deliver for us. So, you know, we're just going to stop paying you. Like, how, how concerned are they about that? My impression is that they're not that concerned about that. My impression is that this is a huge source of business for the lobbying community. Now that we're past tax reform, trade appears to be viewed as a, as a big boondoggle for a lot of uh, lobbying firms because there's so much uncertainty, because even though they might not be able to change the process or change the tariffs, the fact is a lot of corporations right now are confused and don't know what's going on. And so they are reliant on the lobbyists, even if they can't necessarily get the policy changes they want. Um, Another area where we're seeing a lot of lobbying activity is around exemptions. So there's this larger question of, okay, how do we comply? How do we get exemptions from the tariffs um, for clients? And that's its own legal process where lobbyists are seeing a lot of business activity. Yeah, I wonder if you found, as I have, that 
in terms of uh, you know corporations and businesses trying to figure out you know life in Trump's Washington, they're, they're trying to figure out you know who has the juice, who matters, who do you need to talk to, and who is really driving the policies on trade. You know, even in this area, it's tough because you know people rise and fall and influence in the Trump White House so often, almost on a daily basis. It's hard to track that. But how much do you think that you know corporations and, and industries are relying on these lobbyists just to help them figure out like who's who in Trump's Washington? I think that's a significant part of what they're doing because, I mean, one challenge too for the lobbyists is that the White House is divided. So that makes it difficult for them as well in terms of trying to figure out um, the lobbyists themselves who to talk to on this issue. Uh, as you, I believe, had reported and others have written that Rob Porter used to be a point person on this topic and obviously he's no longer there because of domestic abuse allegations. But um, there, it seems unclear who within the White House or where the White House overall stands just given that there is this internal divide. So I think that makes it hard for the lobbyists sometimes to figure out who to communicate their message to because it seems like they do have sympathetic listeners within the White House, but then they often, those people who are more with on the with the business side on this um, tend to get shut out is sort of the impression I'm getting from the lobbyists I've spoken to. So it seems like there's a, it seems like there's a tendency for the lobbyists themselves to not really know, let alone their clients, about who to talk to on these issues. Interesting. You mentioned Rob Porter. We should note for listeners, he was the White House staff secretary, and he very much was the point person on coordination on trade policy when Gary Cohn was the National Economic Council director. And he would get everybody in the room from the USTR and the NEC and the Commerce Department and hash out different issues and have a policy process that then led to uh, possible actions being brought to the president. Once he left and then Gary left, all of that broke down, essentially, as we've reported and others have written about. And it's an ad hoc process now where it's whoever can get in Trump's ear and get in the Oval Office and make their case and go on TV. And it's just a chaotic uh, mess on trade that, uh, that Trump can upend at any time. And it, it does seem like there are days when the trade lobbyists could go to their clients and say, okay, we're, we're having some successes. Look, at the G7, he said he's for you know a, a G7 completely tariff-free zone. And then he gets on the plane and flies off to Singapore and tweets angrily at uh, Trudeau, the Canadian prime minister, and you know, rails at his tariffs and pledges retaliation. So, you know, they might have had a win and then six hours they have a loss. But it's like there's up days and down days. NAFTA might survive. NAFTA's going to die. I mean, there's got to be an extent to which the lobbyists are both exhausted by this, but also they have opportunities to say to their clients, like, this could be a lot worse. And uh, we're having some, you know, little wins here. And it's it's a long game. Like, how do you think they're what their day to day lives are like? I think that the way they're approaching this is advising their clients to essentially talk to the agencies. This appears to be the impression I'm getting is that basically a lot of the focus is getting the is getting their clients to go through the process with commerce or go to the hearings with USTR on the tariffs and walk them through the standard traditional procedural the procedures we have as part of rulemaking in the federal government so that's my sense of how they're approaching this is to just trust the process even though the president is somewhat is volatile on this issue 
Yeah, I trust the process. It's like they're the uh, Philadelphia 76ers of the uh, lobbying world. I don't know if a lot of our listeners are big NBA fans, but that was the slogan for the rebuild of the 76ers. It might be a mess now, but trust the process. We're going to get there. And maybe that's the uh, approach that lobbyists on trade have to take. So it sounds like, you know, this is a lucrative new business model for corporate lobbyists. They're completely frustrated and um, depressed that they can't deliver wins for the clients, but the clients have to continue to hire them because things could get even worse and be more awful and they need to understand it. So there's a lot of losers in this scenario and the, the only winners so far seem to be the lobbyists. Marianne Levine, thank you so much for taking the time. Please do go read her story with Theodoric Meyer. It's fascinating stuff on the lobbying on tariffs and trade in Trump's Washington. Marianne, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. That's a wrap for this week's Politico Money. Thanks so much to Politico's Doug Palmer and Marianne Levine for joining me. Thanks to my producers, Ruth Morris and Micaela Rodriguez. Our executive producer is Dave Shaw. If you're liking the show, please do subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. Rate us and write a written review. We'll be back with you next week.